listening to El Yoshi Video Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi. All right, thanks for listening to the new episode of Yoshiden. I'm back in Los Angeles, K-Town, and I am here at my friend, my former co-worker, Steve Katani, at Gaylord, which is a very famous building uh, named, uh, of course, Wilshire, if you're from Southern California. And I'm also here with my good friend, David Chien. And uh, this episode is dedicated to a great documentary coming early 2014, Resurrecting Doug Dunning. And this is produced and made by my good friend Tracy Tufts and, of course, Steve Katani, who is here tonight. So I'm looking forward to it. And, Steve, I think um, there's some – I'm sorry, you know, I, a lot of my episodes are out of sequence. It depends on what week it is. So I can't guarantee what week I'm releasing this. But um, uh, the new trailer is released in some movie festival you were talking about? The 26th of October – there's a horathon at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica that the uh, Cinematheque does annually. They do an annual overnight horathon of Halloween and horror films. Mm-hmm. Somewhere during the night, they're going to sandwich that trailer in between the screenings. They've, so they've they've told. I, I think the chances are realistically this episode will be released after that. But um, mm-hmm. um, for people who are curious. Because I do have listeners overseas, can you explain to people the Cinematheque? Is, it's a, it's yeah. a famous movie theater, right? Well, the American Cinematheque is a, a nonprofit organization, and they've, um, they've been in Los Angeles for about 20 years now. They were kind of born out of the Cinematheque Francaise. Uh, and Sidney Pollack, the late director, uh, producer, actor, um, I guess kind of realized he, he was part of... Uh, a group of individuals that looked at the Cinematheque Francaise and uh, got the ball rolling somehow. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, artists on board to start a Cinematheque here. I don't know how much his involvement was other than maybe it was just an idea and then other entities got involved. But the American Cinematheque has been programming uh, revival cinema and uh, new undistributed, yeah, the whole gamut, especially like left to center stuff. They've been doing programming here in LA for 20 years at the Egyptian and in the last seven or eight years at the area. And Egyptian is another major theater. And, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's the main home of the American Cinematheque. Okay. And um, uh, so, you know, uh, I, I, of course I want to, because Dave's here, I want to talk to him as well. But basically you, you, you and Tracy, uh, both of them, you guys are dear friends of mine, and you guys are working on this documentary, Resurrect and Doug Dunning. Uh, we will talk more before we finish this episode, but basically, Doug Dunn is an actor in Los Angeles for many years. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he's homeless, but uh, there's uh, many interesting stories about him. So Tracy made a decision to make a documentary about his life, and uh, I haven't seen the whole movie. I've seen the trailer, and the trailer looks fantastic. Thank and you. Uh, I, I give you guys credit. You know, it's, it's, you have a full-time job. And uh, you guys dedicated the last two years, I would imagine. Yeah, it's coming up on two years since mm-hmm. we started. Yeah, thank you. And uh, his, uh, I have to say, uh, I have not met the man, but he's very colorful. And uh, at the end of it, we will give people, uh, well, it's DougDunning.com. How do you spell that? Yeah, D-O-U-G-D-U-N-N-I-N-G, DougDunning.com. 
com as it sounds and he's got an IMDb page as well and so I want everyone you know if you have a chance check out the trailer and we'll talk more about it at the end of it and um, I am here with uh, David Chien um, born and raised in Torrance California and I guess we met through how did we meet again I, I can't remember it was a combination of forces. Uh, I'd been listening to David Cho's podcast. David Eze, yeah. And at the same time, I also attended a comedy show at the Brea Improv that was focusing, it was an evening focusing on Asian American comedians. Oh, yeah, yeah. You were my favorite comedian that night. Well, I mean, there's, what, two of us? But uh, <laughs> no, very, very kind of you, and you, you've been very supportive of the show. And, uh, you know, I want people to support David Eze too. And, um, Thanks to be here, and I, um, you know, this is going to be a quick um, episode. Even though we live in a time when you know a lot of people, especially in Hollywood, talk about the golden age of television, I, I, I still love movies. Um, when you ask questions like, "Who's some of your favorite directors?" You know, what's your childhood experience in movies? I mean, my father was not really—he uh, didn't like sports. So most kids usually have a story about childhood history of, of dads taking them to baseball games, things like that. I didn't have that, but movies, cinema was the thing that I connected with my dad. So I do like movies. Um, I'm not knowledgeable like you guys. You guys take it to another level. So, um, so Steve, so what, what was it about movies that like made you so? I mean, you're you're an expert. You you uh, you have a very high film IQ, it's obvious to me. Well, it might seem that way, but yeah. it, it's, it's staggering what I don't know and what I, you know, there's, you know, every time I feel like I, I have a grasp on it, I, I, I realize there's just so much I don't know about ma major film works, major film directors, there's just, it really is staggering how much I don't know, but I mean, in a, in a general sense, I guess. I mean, I, you I spend money uh, relating to m yeah. movies. The way I spent money on hookers, so it's 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 um, you know I I, I, um, I mean you're you you say that but that's someone who is self aware about you yeah. know well I mean I live in an empty apartment but the few things I have are film books film posters DVDs mm -hmm. I like sports too I am a sports guy I kind of go against the grain in that respect I am a sports guy but um, I mean just my everyday my DNA it's it's movies and all and I didn't really become passionate about movies until my 20s i wasn't mm -hmm. passionate about movies at all i had i liked movies as much as uh any guy does growing up but i wasn't particularly interested in how they were made uh outside of maybe like uh, a couple of directors i knew a couple of directors you know lucas spielberg the the major ones that you would have grown you know i was a teenager in the 80s so obviously lucas spielberg their most of their films sure were the big influence and if there was if there was any exposure to how films were made, if I knew anything about the industry, and it was very little, it was through their work. But it didn't really extend beyond that, and it wasn't my everyday thing. It was more mm -hmm. like baseball and hockey in my teenage years. Um, and then by my early 20s, when, when you, know, you realize that you're just, <laughs> just lack of other hobbies, you realize you're not sure. going to pitch for the Yankees or, or play hockey for the Kings, you know, and you, you realize you're not going to do a lot of things, Movies is a pretty easy hobby to get into because all you have to do is sit there and watch yeah. and read film books. It's it's not uh, it's not the kind of hobby that requires a lot. So for a professional uh, couch potato and uh, sport and failure at other things, you know it was kind of an easy. And then you find that it can be a deeply rewarding and you know it's it's fascinating from so many angles. But 
uh, to come full circle to answer your question. I, it's amazing how much I don't know. And it, it's kind of uh, embarrassing sometimes, too, that there's a lot I don't know for as much of a film fan as I am. But I think I think that self-awareness is what makes you so knowledgeable about it, you know, because you know what you need to work to be more knowledgeable about it. And I think you're, you work really hard. And I don't know anyone who's been like promoting Japanese film, especially from what era to era uh, you were like a big fan of. Well, I have a guru. Um, he's not a close friend, but he's definitely uh, and somebody I'm recommending to you. Uh, and his name is Chris D. Um, and he's interesting for a million reasons but he um, wrote a book about japanese history written, of japanese film he's written several books and uh his latest book is an encyclopedia of japanese genre films and he's a friend um i know him i i knew him just as kind of uh, a patron of the cinematech for years but he was a staff programmer there for years he was an assistant programmer back in the eight in the uh, 90s and then he was the head programmer for a few years he's no longer affiliated with them but he is probably one of the nations, if not the world's leading authorities on Japanese genre films. So he, being a fan of his and um, being introduced, just you know, and then later becoming a friend of his, just knowing, knowing a person like that and uh, realizing there was this endless world of discovery. It's just, you know, just that one country, there's an endless world of discovery of these great films. And um, uh, anyway, I'm rambling, but... I, you know, I, th I think I give credit like your friend Chris and especially people like yourself because I, I think, I know maybe this is, maybe I'm making a big deal out of it, but after World War II, Japan didn't have a lot of uh, self-confidence. And in fact, uh, uh, Akira Kurosawa, me, Rashomon, and in, I think it was Venice Film Festival won a huge award, the biggest award there. And it was a big surprise to Japanese because it just never occurred to most Japanese that, that they're capable of creating something like that. And I think... It yeah. always took foreigners to appreciate what Japanese were doing. So it's, yeah. it's, it's always great when I, whenever I meet people who uh, early on, when it wasn't even fashionable to recognize the talent and the great work by Japanese cinema. Yes. And um, you definitely are one of the guy in my lifetime. Uh, I appreciate it. There's you know? great stuff everywhere mm -hmm. from so many places. And there's so many worlds, there's probably a lot of worlds left to discover. And I'm talking about cinematic worlds from the past. Yeah. I'm not even talking about now or where it might wind up. But Japan, it's, it's incredibly rich. And if you love genre movies, if you like crime films, adventure films, horror films, the American kind, it, there's a lot to know. There's a lot to see. And then you realize Japan almost completely mirrors... Uh, the output of this country in the 40s and the 50s and there's until their studio system collapsed there's just uh, and there's just some of the most amazing the, the sheer volume of amazing films mm -hmm. it just blow your mind how I, much I, incredible stuff there is and that's just Japan and that's not even looking at some of the other Italy you know amazing like France always got the headlines you know and uh, no, no doubt a lot of great massively influential cinema out of France with the new wave and then Italy with the neorealists, but there's so much further you can go in other areas that have been neglected. So um, so next time I definitely want to interview you and Chris together for the Japanese stuff. Chris um, is the man. <laughs> he's, he's the real deal. Now, uh, Dave, um, uh, you know, okay, so I, I, know, I don't know a lot. You were born in Torrance, uh, 1983, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. So, um, and, and you seem like very knowledgeable about film as well. Um, 
Well, first of all, I, I'm sure by now you could tell David Chan. That's a Chinese name. He's Taiwanese. Were you, were you parents? Were they concerned when you decided to study film at USC? It, it, that's not a really feel that um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if you live in Hong Kong, you'll make movies. But um, was that a concern for your parents at all, or they didn't care? It's funny because my mom and dad both wanted to pursue artistic endeavors when they were younger. I believe my mom wanted to be a writer director when she was younger, and my dad had always had a an interest in illustration, and he is still a very good artist. But they never really pursued that mm-hmm. beyond college. And I think I was very fortunate to have parents, uh, two parents, who had flirted with that type of career in the past, and so they were a lot more open to it. Granted, there was certainly resistance in, uh, during the high school years, naturally, because there is not as uh, much of an easy uh, direct income flow, uh, no. especially starting out, and even now it's still a little bit of a challenge. But the funny thing is, my mom even told me the other day that it's, uh, it's weird to think how not having a, an art, artistic-oriented career nowadays also is uh, doesn't really put you at any greater advantage. I mean, everyone's job security is sort of all over the map. And I know a lot of friends who majored in engineering or are in the medical field, and they're both uh, both aspects of both uh, industries. They're heavier in debt than I am. So, um, yeah, we, we, we definitely live in a pre- very precarious time. And... Um, <laughs> So, so you always had a love for movies as a kid, or yeah, and my my dad is the one who really got me into movies precisely because he was always okay with me watching really violent rated R material. So I, I had a head start. I think that was the biggest head start that I had over all of my peers is that I could start watching the really good stuff when I was yeah. four or five. I distinctly remember wow. the memory I have because I still to this day one of my favorite films is RoboCop, and that was one of the did they just remake that or something? Yeah, going to? it's coming out early next year. Yeah, oh, it's coming out. Okay, it's funny because that was probably the second or third film I remember seeing the earliest. I usually cite that in Cronenberg's *The Fly* as being the yeah. earliest memories I have of movies. Oh, I, I love just, his movies. Yeah, <laughs> I mean th- th- those two films kind of defined a lot of my earlier interest, and they still have a big influence on me. And I distinctly remember writing on the bootleg VHS to my dad made of *RoboCop*. I wrote *Rated R*. Not for anyone under five. <laughs> I was really proud of that. Um, it, you know, this, this is an interesting topic because to most Asian people, watching violent film, and, and uh, we don't make it that excuse. Somehow if you watch violent film, you're going to go to violence. That's, that's that excuse. I, I, I don't think of very few Asians make excuses like that. Like We don't believe... Just because you watch violent film, you're going to go around and do terrible things. I mean, do you, yeah. do you know any Asian friends or family member that's an issue with them? I don't. I grow up watching violent stuff. Uh, we, would, we would never blame the violence in the film, you know. You hear what polite society, uh, J- Japanese society is. Sure. Some, it's, some it, of the most transgressive, incredibly violent. I mean, there's some of these Yakuza films from like the early 70s that Kenji Fukasaku directed. I mean, the body counts, it's just the energy of those movies are just, um, the, the violence level, they're spectacular films. And he did so many of them, and the level of violence is just absolutely out of control. And these are films that are well ahead of the Hollywood, their Hollywood, you know, uh, the, you know the, 
I guess Peckinpah would would have been the only guy at that time that could rival the the sheer bloodshed in these sure. in these films. But yeah, you look you look at Japanese society, polite society, and uh, a society of manners and tradition and all those things. And then, but yet there there are uh, especially the genre films could be really transgressive and hyper violent, and all done very well, I right? Mean, extremely well. And then you know the Hong Kong cinema of the eighties, John Woo stuff. Sure. You know, just, some of the greatest action films ever made were done by John Woo and, the, and I'm sure some of his contemporaries as well. Oh, so going back, Dave, so you watched a lot of violent film. Your, your dad was okay with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what was your original plan? Like become a director or screenwriter? Actually, for the longest time, I wanted to be an animator. And I still have a lot of interest in animated material, although I think the quality of cartoons and animated features are not really at the my preferred state mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to pursue that which made sense too because I was influenced a lot by my dad mm. but then I realized that I was far too lazy and not as motivated and I didn't have the uh, the uh, stamina to draw all day long and I realized what interested me more was storytelling and faces and editing and composition things that I was trying to channel through illustration and I just realized it was easier to film stuff so I got that video camcorder when I graduated from eighth grade and that was pretty much when I decided that going into live action filmmaking was the preferred route because it was just so much easier and much more satisfying to stage shots even at the time it was just with action figures or mm -hmm. uh, paper mache models and things like that and eventually friends who I would coax into doing embarrassing things so mm -hmm. so so when you went to USC, which is a very famous film school, I mean you have uh, tons of famous people that graduated from oh, there. Um, so what what was that program like when you went to school? Were you happy with the studying film in USC, or it was different? Yeah. What, were you, what were you expecting like after four years of film school? The funniest thing is, in hindsight, I realized I had no idea what I was expecting because. So prior to starting at USC for the four-year undergraduate program, which was... By the way, that's University of Southern California, which is obviously Southern California, but go ahead, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, USC uh, here in LA. And uh, I was there between 2001 to 2005. So right before I started with them, I actually had two summers of really, really interesting internships. Uh, in the summer of 2000, I was at Sony Pictures interning for James Mangold, who was a remarkably nice and very knowledgeable guy. and. I think the entire summer... Well, is it, sorry, I, I don't recognize that name. And, oh, yeah. Uh, is uh, he a director? So James Mangold, he started off directing Heavy. He then did movies like Copland with Stallone. Sure. And uh, then Oh, I love recently, that movie. Yeah, more recently he did Wolverine. His, his most uh, critically acclaimed film would probably be Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash. Oh, uh, sure, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. And it's funny because... Uh, you know, having that insight with working at the office, and it was the, the usual internship that most of us would have in terms of being in a development office, writing coverage, reading scripts, okay. office errands. But he was a really generous guy. In fact, I found that my two internships, the first one was with him, summer of 2000, and then the following summer, I got a job with Brett Ratner, the director of Rush Hour and other films. <laughs> and it's, it's, funny, it's funny you say that because I, I just went a big to, deal. I just went to his office about a month ago. Is he still on 9255 West Sunset near Donini? No, they have I used to work in that building. They have That's an office in at uh, Universal. His business partner, John Chan, is a friend of mine. I met him through um, my friend Joe Hong, the, uh, the star of the Lincoln Park. 
and I had a my friend wrote a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts and I went there and see to, I just simply mentioned like this could be a TV show and I, I met up with him and I gave him the book unfortunately short I have a new show called Master of Sex so um, <laughs> you know just bad timing but yeah it, it was very nice John is a, a great uh, producer he's working on uh, Horrible Bosses too and a bunch of other movies and uh, he was very kind very generous with his time so but I, I never met Brett Brett Ratner so did you actually work with Brett? My encounter with him was pretty frequent almost okay. on a weekly basis and in fact I got the job through John uh, somebody I met when I was at that Sony internship wait John Chen you know him? yeah oh, oh I, I haven't spoken to him in about uh, seven or eight years oh how oh, this is so funny it's so what weird yeah small world yeah. basically my internship at Sony the previous summer I met somebody who introduced me to John yeah and then that's how I got that job he's a great guy yeah, uh, absolutely really absolutely great guy Generous what's his last name? I'm Chen C-H-E-N-G so so you work with John and Brett and what was that experience like? Well, it was interesting because, so the previous year with James Mangold, the Walk the Line director, it was interesting because with him, the conversations we had were very much about, like the conversation you would have, and I'm sure Steve and I would have at a Cinematheque where we just geek out about our favorite directors. And right. with him, I distinctly remember we spoke a lot about Ozu Kurosawa and Woody Allen. And that was like three months, and I even made bootleg tapes for him, like because there were certain movies at the time that he. May I make a comment about those three directors you mentioned? Um, yeah. I, I love I love all three of them. Also, I'm not familiar, but I have to say, um, somebody grew up in Japan. The Tokyo Story that really. Well, you've seen Tokyo Story. Right? It really gets to me. I've oh, seen yeah. that like three or four times. Yeah. It really get to me, and it's Every interesting about Ozu that he was never married, never had kids. But um, he seems to understand family structure, family very well. Uncanny, I think. Yeah. And uh, Kurosawa, I mean, I mean, if you don't know anything about Kurosawa, shame on you. It's, 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 he's the most westernized Japanese film director ever. He's a fan of uh, Shakespeare and Russian literature. Oh, wow. he's, he's incredible. And um, I, 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 I was, for many years, uh, love Seven Samurai. But man, that high and low, there's so many great films. But that one really got to me. It seemed that, yeah. that there's there's not a too many bad Kurosawa film. Did you know? an adaptation from uh, you know a lot of Western writers. Sure, Dostoevsky is yeah. a big one. Oh yeah, yeah. well, uh, East, in, in that case, yeah, uh, just remarkable breadth of influences, literary influences. You know, from you know taking Shakespeare's what is it Macbeth for Throne of Blood. And, yes. Uh, you know, and then, and then to pulpy kind of noirish writers like yeah. Mc, Ed McBain, I guess, for High and Low, and and other. It's just remarkable, like the breadth of his. He released one of the great masters oh, easily, easily. All of, it's all true. He and really and uh, I'm not going to get in detail, but that the fact that his relationship and his uh, working relationship with uh, Toshiro Mihume is legendary. Oh, yeah. uh, American version, I think, is De Niro and Scorsese in many respects. Um, who was the third director you were talking about? Ozu, Kurosawa? Oh, and Woody Allen. Woody Allen. And <laughs> there's very few people, I believe, had influence in comedy in the last 50 years as Woody Allen. Uh, here, here, you know, granted, his personal life, something seemed very questionable. And right. uh, it's sad. Uh, I'm sure it's sad for him, too, because I don't think he's a bad person, but sometimes... We make bad decision or or decision that maybe not good for uh, entire family, but as far as a comedic mind, the guy's a genius. I mean, he was yeah. playwright, stand-up act, actor, producer, director, editor. Um, he did plays, 
and his joke writing ability. Um, I mean, the guy is unbelievable. So and his that, longevity, that, you know, yeah, he's still as vibrant and as vital artistically as you know. His audience might not be as vast, but it's still you know he still has a, a very strong following, and he's he's uh, tireless. You know, he's got a movie. You know, a movie coming out every year. It seems. It seems like in the last ten years, ever since Matchpoint, every other year he will make something that I like. You know, the yeah. Blue Jasmine thing was fantastic. Yeah. And what was the one with the Paris? What was the one called Midnight uh, in Paris? Maybe? I love that movie too. I didn't see that one, but I heard it's very good. It's, it's just great. And uh, yeah. so you were talking to the first internship that that what was the director's name again? I apologize. Oh, it's uh, James Mangold. So you were able to talk like a really deep, artistic, fun conversation with him. Yeah, it was. He's he's a really knowledgeable guy, and uh, and he was also very friendly with his time, very generous with his time. And how was it different with uh, Ratner? Well, working with Brett was funny because he was extremely nice to me. In fact, I won't deny that there's these things about his reputation in the in the public that may or may not be true about his demeanor. I mean, he is. I think very open about the fact that he's a kind of a bombastic character. And mm -hmm. He's very loud uh, in personality. But very colorful guy. Very colorful guy. Uh, well, the story, uh, kind of a summarized version of this story that I think Steve would appreciate. It, it's, it's worth noting for the listeners that I'm sitting uh, across from Steve and uh, adjacent to him is a uh, framed poster of John Cassavetes, a, a design by John Pham, I believe, that was... Uh, illustrated for the 2011 retrospective at the Cine Family, yeah. which uh, was a remarkable retrospective. Uh, I bring up Casavetti's because when I was at the office, uh, at uh, Rat Entertainment's office at that Sunset building you mentioned earlier, sure. um, I found a copy of the Killing of a Chinese Bookie remake script. Uh, and obviously it never went into production. And, uh, yeah. I won't go into detail about what was inside that script, uh, just because you know it's not really maybe public knowledge. But there was a remake that was kind of floating around, and I just remember at one point being uh, sort of surprised and also disappointed and all that feeling that comes from looking at a. Wait, remake. wait, 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 wait. Why, why, <laughs> why are you disappointed? Well, Be because was, this is, because that's a, such a classic film. Because he knows what an abortion <laughs> that would be coming our way, of, you know, but. I'll, I'll let him speak. Uh, again, just David. because I'm, I'm a very uh, aware or very conscious of what may or may not be allowed to be said. Uh, I won't mention who wrote the screenplay, but it was just enough of an indicator to me that I was concerned of the direction of the script. But I do remember, which is, uh, I think, appropriate to say, is that when uh, Brett caught me reading it, he yeah. asked me if I knew about Casavetti's, if I knew about the original Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I said, of course, like, I love Casavetti's work. I'm still really immersing myself in, his, in, in all of his films. And then, uh, paraphrasing, uh, Brett turned to me and said, I know, the original Killing of a Chinese Bookie is just one of the greatest action films ever made. <laughs> and there was enough of a pause that I couldn't tell if he was being serious. <laughs> but, there was, but he has a smile, a smile that he often uh, projected throughout the office that... I he seemed he seemed like a pretty mischievous guy. Oh yeah, he's he, you know he could be a total brat, and, and I think that's, that's something. Again, I, these are all things I'm sure he'd be willing to admit. Admit, yeah, he's he's kind of a brat about stuff, and I think that's also why he gets stuff done. I think that's a quality. The, mm -hmm. the thing about working with him versus working with James Mangold, who are you know two of the 
two very different directors in terms of career and persona. But it was interesting to see one side of it. It's, it's, it's almost like a difference between uh, Mike Adriano and Joy Severo. <laughs> Sorry, that's a porn reference. Go ahead. One guy makes tranny movies. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead, David. Oh, um, well, it was just that on one side, uh, I had a lot of uh, more intellectual conversation. And on the other side, I got uh, really thrown into how sets really run because I, I got the most set experience by working at uh, Brett's office because he mm -hmm. actually let me visit the set of Red Dragon which happened to be shooting for a couple of their sequences right by USC so I was like getting out of class and I got to go uh, walk across the street on location and just hang out with Anthony Hopkins and that was oh, like wow. nuts that was wow nuts to me. <laughs> I have to say <laughs> I had this podcast if it's impromptu just you know figure out something to do, but it, it's going in the right direction, guys. So what was, what was Anthony Hopkins like? Did you, did, were you able to talk to him or not really? Totally. In fact, I uh, recently told this story again to a couple of friends. What was interesting about Anthony Hopkins, in light of the fact that he recently, uh, he wrote a fan letter recently to Brian Cranston about how in awe he is of both him and the Breaking Bad program, uh, which of course makes a lot of sense. Of course. And it made even more wow, sense. Wow, this me. is interesting. Hannibal Lecter saying hello to Walter White. Go ahead. <laughs> it, it seems so appropriate. Uh, and, but it made sense to me because the, the thing that was so striking about Anthony Hopkins is that he was so approachable. And out of all the people who were there that night, Edward, Edward Norton was not approachable at all. I mean, he was very much in his own head, preparing for the scenes and just kind of walking and pacing around in circles and reciting his lines. Anthony Hopkins. Like couldn't care less. Not in that he wasn't taking it seriously, but he really made an effort to hang out with all the below-the-line people. Well, I could be wrong, but you guys go ahead and correct me, but what was that movie with Lawrence Olivier, uh, Marathon Man, sure. with Dustin Hoffman? And uh, the story goes something like, there's a scene where Dustin Hoffman's character, uh, who was torture, uh, uh, one, one, yeah, one of the dentist, scenes. Yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, he 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 escapes. Uh, Lawrence Olivier is like Nazi dentist, and he's torturing Dustin Hoffman's character. Dustin somehow his character escapes. So uh, to prepare for that part, um, he doesn't sleep for like two three days, and he's all fucked up. So make the story believable. And then Lawrence Olivier saw him and said like, "Why do you look so bad?" And then Dustin Hoffman. Explain to him like, well, to prepare this part. I'm paraphrasing, but um, uh, he didn't sleep for two, three days. And Lawrence will pause for a second and say, "My dear boy, have you ever tried acting?" And because um, he was opposed to the method, he didn't like. I, I mean, you know, I he mean, was old, older school, maybe pre, yeah, he, pre method. He, I guess Lawrence Olivier's point was like, if you have to play that part, just act that part. You don't have to. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if, you, if you're going to play a rapist, you don't have to go around raping people. I can respect both points of view. Yeah. I can yeah. respect both, you know. Lawrence Olivier came from an older school, probably. Yeah, and, and uh, who, who, who dare question Lawrence Olivier Certainly acting? Not. Yes. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot to be said for those, those actors. To digress just for a second, those actors from the, the new Hollywood era, that, you know, like De Niro and Hoffman, because, I mean, to this day, most of those performances still resonate. And sure. they, were, they were all methody guys. They were all methody, and uh, you know, Raging Bull putting on the 60, 60 pounds, and sure. uh, isolation for Taxi Driver, and you, know, you just said Marathon Man and other roles, still resonate. Anyway, 
Well, you know, and, and like like I said, I'm not as knowledgeable as you guys, but there are certain films that really hit me home as a kid, and uh, uh, I'll mention a couple of them um, for me because I had some personal connection with my parents, but uh, Lawrence of Arabia, that one really hit home. I, I, I watched that several times with my dad many, many years ago, um, and a graduate, and, sure. uh, um, and of course, um, first, for, first American film that I actually saw in the States was with my dad, Moonraker, with James Bond movie. Oh, that's a, I wasn't <laughs> expecting you to say that one. That one, that, that I one. I saw that with my dad in the theater. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. and Spy Who Loved Me. I think those two Bond films, they were, I remember seeing those with my dad, and he thought Moonraker was terrible. But The Graduate, <laughs> uh, the Lawrence Arabia and uh, Graduate, those really, um, really gets me every time I see it because yeah. um, I met Dustin Hoffman I was lucky enough to go to Tonight Show my friends worked there oh, cool. and this is one of the few times I saw him and he was along line uh, uh, taking picture he was very generous with his time taking picture with people but I talked to him he ended up talking to me for like maybe five minutes very very generous with his time but I basically told him like I, uh, Mr. Hoffman, I really enjoyed seeing you in the actor studio. It really moved me. At the point of uh, almost made me cry because um, basically in the early one, he basically said how horrible a relationship he had with his dad, you know. And then uh, I didn't have a horrible relationship. I, it was pretty much non-existent relationship. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was so kind. I mean, he, he said, are you an actor? How's everything going? And um, I don't think that's a fake. He seemed like a genuinely oh, decent I'm, human I'm, being. Absolutely, I'm sure. And uh, I'm I, sure. I, I love him. And uh, yeah, it's uh, so. I, I, Dave, I really like hearing stories like this. You met somebody because <laughs> Silence of Lamb. I love that movie. I just think I don't think it's a horror flick. I just think it's a great film. Period. And I, I really enjoyed that a lot. Hopkins uh, has done some great work. So, did you for that internship? Did you meet anybody else uh, of? Uh, that statue? Well, I uh, Anthony Hopkins was definitely the most famous person mm -hmm. that I encountered possibly ever in terms of actors and actresses, but... I, I, I put him next to... Um, <laughs> That's a big name. That's a big name. Anthony Hopkins, I put him right next to Doug Dunning, but go ahead. I, I will say there's actually something that occurred to me. Uh, there were two jobs that I really, really regret not getting. And I have only myself to blame for not waking up early when I was young, going to Saturday school to improve my Chinese, my Mandarin, which is still pretty reprehensible. Because had I been able to speak Mandarin fluently and read and write it uh, with any kind of skill, I had two different opportunities to be both Jet Li's mm -hmm. and uh, Zhang Ziyi's personal assistant, translator, uh, when they were in the States shooting uh, their respective films during like 2000, 2001. Oh, wow. Wait, and who was the second person? Oh, uh, Zhang Ziyi. Oh, uh, that's that beautiful Chinese girl. From Crouching Tiger. Oh, oh, yeah. And Rush Hour 2, might I add. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, I, in fact, the Jet Li job was something that John Chang uh, was trying to get for me because he assumed I knew how to speak Chinese fluently. Yes. And it was, if I recall, pretty close to happening. And then I realized, oh, wait, but I... I don't speak Chinese very well at all. In fact, it's fairly broken. And he's like, oh, well, it's not going to work out. <laughs> so I was like a window of about an hour where I was super stoked that I was going to hang out with Jet Li for two summers. And then it, and then it just it went know, up in smoke. A mirage. <laughs> so, but did you, did you, were you able to meet them or you didn't meet them? No, no. Okay. The gates were closed unless I could speak perfect Mandarin. So, 
when, when you did those internships, did you specifically look for those directors to work for, or did you just, you just by chance you got the job and you... It, it was by chance, and they actually worked out pretty well because uh, I, uh, I really loved Heavy, and I really, really liked Copland. And also, I was really crazy about this movie called Beautiful Girls, which was produced by Kathy Conrad, a producer who happens to be the wife of James Mangold, and now his full-time producer, more or less. So it was really not, and she also produced Kids. So it was great to pick her brain because she yeah. was awesome. And she had great stories too because at one point I think she was dating the cinematographer Mikhail Solomon who she was dating him around the time that he did The, the Abyss. And she was telling me some great stories about The Abyss that would complement everything I learned from the seven disc, laser disc set of The Abyss <laughs> that I poured through when I was a kid. And then, and then of course I was actually a really huge fan of Money Talks and Rush Hour. I thought they were for... You know, mainstream Hollywood comedies trying to break into like this urban market. I thought they were actually both really, and I still think they're pretty decent. And so, uh, working at Brett Ratner's office was nice to to shed that light on that side of the business, like a very different. Uh, whereas Kathy Conrad and James Mangold represented a more Miramax, more of a independent films. Independent so. films. Right. Brett Ratner was a, a window into studio films and seeing right. how like New Line would greenlight stuff. And this was literally right at the time that New Line was back in the game in a big way because it was they were you know in post production on Lord of the Rings. Just like when I was at Sony, oh, wow. it was the summer before Spider Man. So oh, I actually wow. saw within the studio space, just as a you know complete intern bystander how these, these uh, companies were prepping for the next big uh, monetary uh, stage of their lives. Do, do, do you think New Line knew how big of a thing that Lord of the Rings was going to be? Did you? It, it's like they were thinking it was going to be huge, and then it became monumental. Like, they, they were prepared for it to be big, but right. like, their already huge expectations were definitely tripled. It's astronomical how much that they made, oh, and yeah, they're still. they're wise to make all three of them same time. And there's you more know. coming, right? The, the the second Hobbit will be released this uh, December, mm-hmm. and um, um, yeah, you know, I I I'm, you know, I've I've talked about this with you, Steve, before. You know, President Eisenhower, little before he retired, he warned the danger of industri- military industrial complex. Uh, but I, I, I believe we had this conversation. Well, we live in a military industrial entertainment complex. <laughs> entertainment is a huge, huge part. And yeah. I, I, I only say this because whenever I travel overseas, it must be uh, disturbing to some people overseas how much influence this country has through our TV and cinema. Oh, it's unbelievable. Well, it's been that way for a long time. But it's even more so. It continues to expand. I it's it's expand quite a bit. and Well, it's it's pretty much demolished over the last 30, 40 years the, the, other, the once upon a time thriving local film industries of like Italy, Japan. I mean, pretty much, right? I mean, they've evidence that the giant Hollywood studios have slowly but surely Demol, you know, it's no matter where you are. There's always uh, an abundance of Hollywood product, studio product, sure. always. And they can't compete and with USA, yeah. right? A, and right. it's very similar to when Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Google, when they see a mom and pop company making product or app or something that they like, they would just buy them over. And um, whenever there's a new movie overseas that do really well, we turn around, get the rights, and remake it. And uh, I don't know. It's I just think culturally. I think maybe French have definitely have a point. Like we're so dominant. It, we're more dominant in entertainment world than our military, 
or yeah. economic powers, you know. It's but, our uh, chief export. That's why I'm a big supporter of uh, independent film as, for, uh, as well as studio film because I just think it's good for America. We have more influence overseas. I don't think it, not everyone shared that view, but since I'm American, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Um, so, um, so you you did that? Did you, so you and you did two internship? Uh, thanks for sharing that. That's, that, that's really interesting. Um, well, it's funny because I realized as as you were mentioning about the uh, the dominance of American cinema worldwide, it occurred to me that I never really answered your question. Uh, the The reason why I brought the two internships up is because so they dramatically uh, they set me up for a dramatic letdown when I went to USC because USC was pretty. Uh, boring compared to just having been able to see big productions going. I felt that it was such a pause in my education as opposed to furthering it, which is not to say, I mean, I had two professors in particular, and unfortunately I can't remember one person's name. Uh, gosh, I forgot her name. It's really embarrassing. But there were a couple of professors who did, uh, who were very interesting and enlightening, but only within the realm of film school. Because I think the what's weird about film school, at least for me, and specifically because I was on the critical studies track, which is, is probably a good way to get you to become a film critic. In fact, one of my classmates, who I never really knew very well, but uh, we were the same year and we took a lot of the same classes, his name is Justin Chang, who's now one of the top critics on, in Variety. Oh, wow. And, and he's, a very good, he's a very good writer and his opinions are very sound uh, for the most part, you know, in accordance to my views. But... Um, uh, I think the track that I was on was inherently wrong because I always knew I wanted to make films. In fact, it was always kind of a weird thing. And to this day, some people will tell me, I always see you critiquing films or reviewing films. But the truth is, I, I'm so indecisive about how I feel about movies, even the first three times I watch them, that I, that's why I feel like I could never really be a film critic. Because I think what helps those who are film connoisseurs or filmmakers or film curators is that I think you should definitely have strong opinions and you should also have a strong sense of knowing what you don't know, like kind of what you were saying earlier, Steve, about right. it's like almost the more that you inhale all these movies, the more you realize that there's just so much stuff out there you haven't seen and so mm -hmm. many nuances to stuff that you think you like that you probably that probably age poorly and things and sometimes you have to totally reassess and yeah yeah the reassessment is is really where the education comes in how do you feel about are you familiar with ray carney oh i am I, okay so if you want to talk about strong opinions and academia and film criticism could you explain and john cassavetes yeah. ray carney is uh, arguably maybe not arguably the leading authority on the films of john cassavetes he's written a number of books and studied cassavetes and he has some very controversial opinions. He basically says there's Cassavetes and there's nobody else. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, with, which I can agree with, too. I mean, he thinks Tarantino's a hack. He thinks uh, Hitchcock and Orson Welles are uh, vomit-inducing and overrated. I mean, that's a very poor way of... He, he goes into some very, very well-thought-out uh, academic reasons for thinking... Uh, he considers them overrated. He, think, he considers Woody Allen to be grossly overrated and attempts to deconstruct why anyway he's i when david was going on that interesting um uh that interesting line about uh, film criticism and reassessing and then you mentioned cassavetes earlier i couldn't help but 
I wonder if you were okay. And what are what, have you read any of his books? And what are your opinions of uh, Mr. Carney? Before you comment on the date, I, I here's my impression. I've only watched one movie by Casavetti, and yeah. I really enjoyed it, uh, which is the Chinese bookie movie. And you which, liked it as a great action film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like Crouching Tiger, a lot of wire work. <laughs> yeah, and I, I watched it because you you mentioned it before, and yeah. but. This is the part I get really confused. Um, you know, when you go to school as a young kid, there's certain books the teacher was beat it over your head into it. Like, I've been, I've been, I've been told many, many years that Shakespeare's a great writer, on and on. So after a while, without not knowing exactly why, I read several books. I was forced to read them. So you take it for granted. Uh, Iliad and Odyssey by Homer. Um, uh, you know, Don Quixote was, you know, Spanish you know, novel and things like that. So it's just Moby Dick, you know, this great book. Yeah, the great Even though I haven't read most of it, because that stuff was just beating to my head, so I just assume, okay, for whatever reason it is. Yeah. Cassavetti's names always rank very high among people that I respect, very smart people. But sometimes I think, are these, I'm not talking about you guys, but when I meet these hipsters, mention his Are name. Are they just name dropping? Name, name dropping, like yeah, the answer is yes. That's what they're doing. <laughs> and 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 I can I enjoyed the watching. I mean, I, I watched it because I have, I heard so many people name Casavetti's name all the time. So I was yeah. just curious. I watched. It, I I enjoyed it. However, if I just happened to be watching the movie without never been told by other people whether I like it, I don't know if I would have been that patient watching the movie beginning to end and I don't I honestly right. I don't think I would have finished that rather than being told these are your vegetables yeah. you should eat they're good for you these I know what you're saying if you had like a more organic way and his stuff is is I, I guess what I'm trying to ask yeah. like um I, I, Dave I still want you to uh, answer what you think about that critic sure. but but can you guys both take turn like explain who he was what movie and what why is it so great to you guys I mean, that's, that's always been one of the big mysteries to me. You can go ahead, Dave. Well, John Cassavetes is known mainly as an actor for, I think, the majority of people who have any knowledge about or any rec you know, who recognize his face. He was in a very popular TV show called Johnny Staccato. He, uh, probably his most famous thing ever is he played the husband to Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby and famously hated working with Polanski. Um, why, why, why? Well, I think... Well, clash, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a creative clash. I mean, certainly uh, Cassavetes and Polanski are incredibly different directors stylistically, thematically, spiritually. Mm. Uh, I like Polanski's movies. Oh, yeah. And, and the funny thing, with Polanski. and to preface this, and I'm, I think, Steve, you might feel the same way, like even in discussing in a bit Ray Carney, the critic in question and professor in question, the funny thing is that a lot of these filmmakers... I, there's very few of these filmmakers that I hate or dismiss completely. Like I, I really uh, like when it comes to Polanski and Cassavetes, like they're both incredible, legendary filmmakers. Uh, but it was interesting to note how. But only one of them fucked the kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is well, I do we have know. a mixed feeling about that. Go ahead. As far as we know about yeah. John, yeah. no. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, Cassavetes was also known to give certain directors that he worked for. A hard time because he was also he had also worked with Brian De Palma for the Fury, the uh, horror film with Kirk Douglas in the seventies, mm -hmm. and uh, very famously got in his case uh, because you know these were directors who were more in tune with their uh, the camera work and the style the stylistic aspects of their story, and he hated that because those flourishes even though he was a very stylistic director, but 
the way he would frame his work and the way he would talk about his work was never just about camera techniques. It was always, in fact, so going back to the question or the answer, when he, uh, as an actor, found himself getting more and fulfilled by a lot of the roles that he got paid to do, he decided to go into filmmaking, his first film being Shadows, uh, one of those versions. So he, his first intention was actor, not directing. Uh, right. I, I think yeah. From a young age, acting was the key, and then acting led him into this artistic Directing path. came later. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I think, uh, like a lot of actors who really can see uh, both sides of that uh, of the industry, uh, he also knew that he was encountering a lot of really talented people who just weren't really given material that was interesting beyond uh, a very generic, melodramatic part. Uh, so his movies, I mean, the, the thing about Cassavetes, about summing up his work, is that I feel like a lot of the, the hipster culture that has appropriated names like Cassavetes or Kubrick don't really get their work. In fact, it's interesting to me, people who say they love Cassavetes have very rarely talk about love streams or opening night in the same way that people who, and a lot of people love Kubrick and The Shining is like in this kind of uh, uh, tipping point right now, it seems, you know, with all the dialogue about The Shining. But I, I tell you... You're like, talking about The Room 237? Yeah, in light of yeah, that documentary yeah. coming out and just the fact that it has... I, I actually I love, love that. I, I, I love that, love that, that. I really I, I love that documentary. What's <laughs> that? Movie. I really love the documentary. Me too. It's so fascinating. Um, but, I, I, uh, I sorry to interact because I think we need to make similar documentary about rogue adventures. That the media <laughs> thirty six or thirty five. <laughs> so I apologize. Rogue adventures, a transsexual movie yeah. that I used to work on. Well, go ahead. Well, Greg Carney's written extensively about the films <laughs> of Joey Silvera, as well as uh, John Cassavetes. Little known fact: what, both we, guys are from New York. What if it's a tagline for those who really understand the Ray Carney debacle? that Yoshi Obayashi is the Ray Carney of Silvera. Yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, that would be good analogy, good analogy there. That would be yeah. hilarious to like three dozen people online. Cassavetes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, to me, if, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to... No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Talk about how... I remember being a kid and watching The Dirty Dozen with my dad on TV. And I remember him telling me he saw The Dirty Dozen in a movie theater with his dad when it first came out. And I remember him pointing out the actors, and it's one cool actor after another, after another, after another, after another. And then he says, this guy's John Cassavetes. He's another. You don't know this guy, but this guy's great. I don't know what my dad said it. My, I, my dad was completely aware that Cassavetes was probably, uh, uh, not probably, but he was completely aware that Cassavetes was collaborating with Peter Falk on films, and they were great friends. But I'm sure my dad didn't see any of the films that Cassavetes directed. I'm sure there would have been no interest, but he was aware of the mainstream actor, John Cassavetes. And uh, from there... That, by the way, is that his real name? John Cassavetes? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It seems like a make-it-up name to you? That's his, it, it, it's such a cool name. That, that It is a cool you know. name. He's a, you know, he's a, it's, it's a great Greek name. And uh, it's just a great name. And years after, like a lot of things, like a lot of different films and film directors the knowledge that he was a director and he had made all these fantastic uh, interesting independent films was from watching Siskel and Ebert and they would talk not a lot it wasn't often that he would come up but I can remember that remember them referencing him and I watched Siskel and Ebert religiously I watched it all the time I hardly and they would mention him and that I was like wow that's interesting John Cassavetes and I knew that he was this cool actor that my dad liked and you know I probably knew about Rosemary's Baby and somewhere 
somewhere in my early 20s when I started to take movies more seriously and read about them more seriously and seek them out and realize that there was a lot more than just mainstream top 40. You know, when you, when you go on that, on that voyage of discovering all these new movies, somewhere along that way, I started seeing his movies. And then it didn't really, t it, it wasn't hard to get his movies. It was definitely like, uh, you know, a style that's, the style and structure of, of film direction that was very different than what I'd been used to. But it was still, uh, I mean, I was into it. I wasn't bored. And then I remember um, in the late 90s, I had satellite TV, and I remember, but I still didn't know everything. I had seen a few films, and I really thought he was an interesting director. And then when I had satellite, I had seen a, the, the independent film channel. And my interest went through the roof when one day I was flipping on the channels, flipping through, the, and I come up on IFC, and this movie's on. And there's John Cassavetes, and there's Peter Falk, and there's Ben Gazzara. What the hell's the name of this movie? And then it got the on-screen text comes up. Husbands, what the hell is this? He did another one. He's a woman. I, I just, it just not not that he directed so many films, but it was such an interesting discovery. Like, wow, there's another movie that he did from this time period with these actors. It's about relationships. What a cool title. I love this title. I love. And wait a minute. I mean, it just and then and then from there, then I started taking it more seriously and reading the books and uh, watching the films and it really is it's it's an acquired taste for sure but then when you when you get to where it's at you just see how pragmatic his style how postmodern his style is and you really it really becomes incredibly when you develop a taste for his stuff you almost can't watch anything else around that time you really you really realize that it's something very special and this is uh these are very well-observed movies, and this is a man of enormous talent. And it's without a lot of the, the usual studio games and, and uh, structure. Do you feel the same way, Dave? Yeah, uh, Steve put it really well. In fact, to complement that, uh, it was when I was still in high school and when there were still uh, like Sam Goodies at malls. Oh, yeah. I went to a Sam Goodies, and my very first encounter with Casavetti's as a director was in the discount bin, tattered with all the... Uh, shrink wrap like almost gone where the Anchor Bay clamshell releases of Mikey and Nikki yeah. which is a movie that was a star of Peter Falk and yeah. Cassavetes Elaine but directed May. by Elaine May the uh, the woman who it's the most Cassavetes movie not without not directed by Cassavetes well in fact anyway finish what you're yeah. saying uh, and then next to that was A Woman Under the Influence right. and now these like out of print at least on well VHS is out of print but um, these two movies I bought because they were cheap I like the fact that they were in clamshells because they seem more collectible. And I grew up on a healthy diet of Columbo. That's the yeah. only reason I bought these two tapes. <laughs> and I hated A Woman Under the Influence because I was in middle school. It was boring and, <laughs> and really weird. And, but then I loved Mikey and Nikki because there's something about two dudes hanging out all night uh -huh. that was appealing uh, for any dude who can watch a movie. And it's incredible. You'd love it, man. It's, a, it's like a Scorsese movie almost. It's like, like a B-side to Mean Streets. I yeah, see. totally. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, uh, but in many ways more emotionally complex. Of course. I mean, uh, it's funny because Mikey and Nikki, as Steve mentioned, it's not directed by Casavetes, but it's like the most Casavetes film. And his presence and his, uh, I'm sure his collaboration with Elaine May, however tumultuous. Can I, can I ask you, sorry to interrupt, but when you say, uh, uh, I don't know if this, this makes sense, if you say typical Casavetes movie, what what is it? Like... How would you describe it to someone who, who hasn't watched his movies? Uh, that's tricky. Uh, there's certainly the, the stuff that's 
uh, quote unquote obvious in terms of how most people, I mean, it's true. Like his films tend to have this very uh, abrupt style where scenes would kind of begin and end in the middle somewhere. And sometimes the cutting would be really quick and very sporadic. And then sometimes you'd be stuck in the same scene for a little longer. Like the flow, I always describe it that way. The rhythm and flow is always a little bit off and it's always about relationships and and these very like quirky uh, encounters. Quirky uh, in, not in the current sense, but they were very nuanced, very, like people could be just screaming at each other and then passionately kissing and then screaming at someone else. And, and, and the thing is, I, I, you know, people, the thing that drives me insane is when people say that uh, when they look at an indie film today and they see handheld camera work and racking, fo- like things going in and out of focus, and, they, and then you know, people are just like yelling and overacting, quite frankly. They say it's Casavetti's style, and that's a complete misreading of Casavetti's. There is one or two films where he incorporated handheld in any predominant way. But really, truth be told, his movies are pretty... Uh, Pretty yeah. well lit. And Most of the stuff is locked off. Locked well, off. Yeah, he. You're 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 absolutely correct, and um, you uh, you reminded me a lot of. Say what you will about his en- enormously conceited, controversial opinions that Ray Carney has. Yeah. Enormously conceited. Um, he has masterfully explained. Uh, watching a John Cassavetes movie and how you are not like most Hollywood films where you're passively watching. If you're going to watch a Cassavetes movie the right way, you're actively involved in the movie. And in one scene, one scene, you'll experience all range of emotion. It'll start out, you don't know how the people in the scene are connected. It's not spelled, nothing is spelled out for you the way it is in a conventional Hollywood movie. You're an active participant. You've got to be like, trying to figure out what the relationships are of the people. And then it might go from happy to sad to boisterous, then to sad again, and then it ends. You know, all in the span of one scene, you'll have an incredible range of emotion. And uh, it mirrors a a lot of what life might have been like for him growing up. And then later on, his relationship with Jenna, his, his, his leading actress in so many of his great movies, and some of the ups and downs they had. It, uh, it, it really is, you, you don't passively watch a John Cassavetes movies. You have to be, at, you're actively involved and it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be unpredictable. It's gonna, you're, you're gonna think that you've got a bead on what, okay, now I know what's happening. I see, okay, their brother and sister. Nope, they're actually ex-wife and I, like whether it's, whether it's the, how the relationships are structured or just the, the general rhythm of the scene, you're, you're going to be constantly defeated. He's always looking to defeat expectations. He undercuts a lot of the, the scenes. In fact, uh, probably the best way, uh, one way I always describe the work of Cassavetes or the way he would operate is uh, when he made that film Husbands in, 19, I think, 1970s when it came out. Right. It was a studio-financed film from Columbia Pictures. And, of course, you can even go on YouTube and find this amazing clip of when Cassavetes, Peter Falk, and Ben Gazzara all went to the... I like that guy. Yeah. Dick Cavett. Yeah. I got a Ben Gazzara story for you. Because um, I, I was actually... I picked him up from the airport. When oh, was, I gotta hear this. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta... Okay, By go ahead. all means, David. <laughs> um, okay, so... Husbands, being a studio film, and, and with the full support of a lot of money, John would uh, have test screenings, and very successful ones, and he would only recut stuff when people liked it. 
when people would come out in the lobby afterwards and explain to him, and I think they even had test screenings at the former Man National in Westwood, one of these big former yeah. movie palaces, right. one-screen theaters. Um, he would hear what people would say was the most entertaining, and he would find a way to either cut it out or re-edit it or reposition it in the narrative so that it became either distracting or uncomfortable or too short. And then things that they would say went on too long, he would make longer. But, he, you know, <laughs> and he was naughty. Like he was like, I mean, I see him as like a total naughty filmmaker, and I think some of the best ones have to be a little naughty. Uh, but how they express the naughtiness defines like... Wait, wait, hold on. Course. What do you mean by naughty? Like there's... Brian De Palma naughty, where you begin a movie with a lot of bare vaginas, oh, like in Carrie, okay, okay. <laughs> and then there's and because you know that's going to rile up the studio execs, and there's also the naughty of Cassavetes, oh, where, sabotaging his own work, sabotaging yeah. it creatively, exactly. Or uh, yeah, I mean to the extent where I think he was very conscious of cutting things, so cutting things down or making them longer. Was he doing it? Annoying people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he would he would say uh, that. And the I think more that, I hear about this guy, I love this guy. <laughs> there's a lot to know. For a guy that only made 10, 8 to 10 films, there's a lot to know. There's a lot to know. Oh, which is precisely, I mean, and we'll go back to this, but the Ray Carney thing is even more uh, juicy. Ray, is, is Ray still alive? Ray oh, Carney yeah. is still alive. You're, t- you're, you're alluding to The Shadows, the other version of Shadows. Yeah, earlier, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, boy, there's, I mean, boy, this, is, this could be on. The the, there's so much to know. Have you read a lot of Kat, uh, Ray Carney's work? Like, uh, I think I've read I've read everything he's uh, officially published, and I even read a bunch of the unofficial stuff off his website and blog. Yeah, Cassavetes on Cassavetes. You read, which is a tremendous, tremendous piece of work. Yeah, you should check it out. Cassavetes on Cassavetes. Well, I I, I could already tell this is going to be first of many thing I would like to do with both you two guys because. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> It's his movie. This is almost like a, the, 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 the film uh, version of Buddy Cops. Like, you guys are like the <laughs> film cops. Like, you know, you guys, like, yeah. I don't have to explain anything. You guys are on the same page. Because like, we, we didn't plan this. I just. Very improv. I just happened to be in the neighborhood. I just called you. And I just remember Dave's been contacting me last week or so. And so I just called him last minute. I didn't know we were going to have a, such an insightful, fun conversation. My problem is I don't know uh, enough about him, but let me ask you, um, if we have to do something dumb for a moment, like Casavetti for Dummies, I mean, if you had to pick three films that you like by him, that you want to recommend to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, what, which ones would you recommend? Oh, you're saying like to start out easy or to start out with the harder stuff? or I mean, you mean in, like the more audience-friendly stuff? I think many in Moskowitz. I would say the same one. Many in Moskowitz because you have all of the trademark Cassavetes touches. The, the, the like David so perfectly explained a few minutes ago about the way he'll cut. He'll he'll let a scene run a little long. Then other times he'll 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 cut right on a line. You have all of that in Many in Moskowitz, and it's a romantic comedy like you've never seen before. But it is riotously funny. What was it about? I mean, if you could get <laughs> it's well. Um, it's about a, a highly unlikely romance between a parking valet uh, slob from New York uh, who's very obnoxious and uh, By the way, very, did, did, did all his films take place? Oh, no, that's not true. Oh, uh, New York. The Chinese book is in L.A., right? Correct. Yeah, Sunset Strip. They filmed it all. I think it was Gazzari's. They dressed Gazzari's a little differently. for, uh, And uh, you want to... And I want to hear the Ben Gazzara story. Ben Gazzara uh, playing one, one of the most uh, uh, memorable Cassavetes characters, Cosmo Vitelli. Uh, 
Oddly, uh, oddly kind of quasi-remade by Peter Bogdanovich is a movie called St. Jack, which I have not seen. Uh, Bogdanovich, kind of a collaborator of Cassavetes' is for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, um, during that time, made his own film called St. Jack. I believe he filmed it in Thailand. Ben Gazzara plays a character very closely linked. Have you seen that, David? Have you seen St. Jack? I started watching it many years ago, and the videotape that I was watching was in such bad condition, I stopped about a third of the way through because I wanted to see it at the Egyptian or whenever they... And it has been revived. I know that the Cine family has, not often, but over the last 10 years, I know I've seen it on a film calendar locally. I just, I haven't gotten around to seeing it. So going back to that movie, you could recommend it. Minian Moskowitz would be a great gateway drug. Or, you know, maybe some of the... It's a romantic comedy. It's a romantic comedy, but not... I mean, it's very funny in spots. And he didn't sabotage it to uh, make it more oblique or or less commercial. Uh, uh, He did did kind of deride it. It's like, ah, I made a commercial movie. Like, he kind of derided it, but it was... um, I think it was relatively successful, and it's got some great performances. Was he uh, respected and appreciated when he was alive? As an actor, I think he was always respected and appreciated. Um, as a director, he it was it was weird. He didn't make that many films. The films that he did make, he would make a huge statement and get all kinds of critical acclaim, and then the movie he would follow it up with would ruin all that. Then he would get then he would get it back. Then the movie he would follow it up with would alien. You know, Chinese Bookie I think had a test screening in Cleveland, and about I don't know maybe an hour into the film in unison, everybody in the theater, as legend has it got up and walked out. Like I literally see. 400 people got up and walked out because they opening night played to empty houses. Um, Love Streams, I, I think, was pretty much commercially ignored. So he mostly, as a director, he didn't really get uh, too much recognition until now that he's, sadly, he's gone. Now, you know, he's gotten the most recognition in the last 5, 10, 15 years since his passing. Uh, during his, he did enjoy some success as a director, and that's how he was able to keep roll. And he would keep rolling whatever success he had over into the into the next film. Uh, I think Husbands did quite well, or did it not? Maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, Faces did well. Faces did really Faces well. Faces did well. It blew the doors open. You know, the a new voice in independent cinema has arrived. And then I guess Husbands was a major step back. And then uh, Woman Under the Influence was both commercially and critically successful. And uh, Jenna Rollins, I think, uh, was nominated for Best Actress. That one, I think it was playing out of competition somewhere. Uh, I guess to be eligible for a certain award, it, all the spots were occupied. Scorsese plays a role a lot in uh, Cassavetti's life during that time professionally. Um, and uh, I wait, think, wait, wait, wait. So, um, well, they were... Scorsese, they, they were good friends. I didn't know that. They 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 had worked together, and uh, Cassavetes, I I think had a fa- that Scorsese owed a, a favor to Cassavetes. So, I guess to get Woman Under the Influence screened at a certain film festival, he contacted Martin Scorsese, who had a film that was screening. I think it was his documentary about his mom. And Scorsese pulled his movie to allow. I I don't you know, I don't know that you maybe David knows a little more detail on that. But Scorsese was instrumental in helping elevate the, the prominence of Woman Under the Influence when, in, the, in the early days, when it, before it, it uh, eventually went on to become this legendary film and uh, this unbelievable movie. Um, well, let me ask one more, then I uh, want to spend a lot of time with Dave. Um, of course. So, it, 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 what, what, which movie you loved the most? 
Of right. his movies, I think Woman Under the Influence has overall the most impact. I, I think all of his movies have an, an, an abundance of amazing... But what is it about that movie that you uh, love so much? The performances are... I've, I've never seen a performance... All the performances are excellent, but Jenna Rowland's performance in that movie is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's completely real to me. Uh, it really is tremendous. It's, it's a beautiful piece of art. If acting is, is, can be a beautiful, expressive piece of art, she finds it there. And, uh, and I find some moments throughout that film relatable on a personal level. But her performance, it just, it's, it's unbelievable how good she is in that movie. Um, Besides the one that um, Steve picked, which one movie would you introduce to somebody who doesn't know anything about Cassavetti and why? Dave? Typically, a lot of film critics and in film school, they rely on either Faces from the 60s or Woman Under the Influence in the early 70s. And the thing is, those two films I find to be two of the hardest films to watch. Uh, I think they're. Well, why, why is it so hard to watch? Because for me personally, the, the effect of watching both films is so engaging, so involving, so you're in the room with these people. Uh, and you know, it's really, there's not a spoiler type of thing to say. It's just that. For example, in Faces, you have an extended sequence where a man is trying to revive a woman on the bed who, who's had some like overdose or some allergic reaction. Right. And, and it's so, uh, I mean, this is towards the end of the film, too, in the same way that a woman under, woman under the influence has an incredibly long sequence where, I mean, it, it's like if you've ever seen your mom and dad argue and you were under the age of nine or eight. Oh, uh, I have <laughs> seen a lot of that. I'm not even joking. It's I a very seen, relatable film yeah. if you've seen that. Just that almost a symphony of how people yell and throw things and slam and hit themselves. and Which is why, strangely, I would actually recommend Love Streams, his last film. Tremendous film. Because in a weird way, that has evolved for me as being, uh, in the same way that Minnie and Moskowitz is a, a lighter film for people to engage with, Love Streams is actually fairly straightforward in plot. Like, it's, it's pretty uh, straight. Like, it's so simple, in fact. Like, it's almost... Uh, all of his films are relatively simple. They're not like all densely plotted. Um, there's no question that A Woman Under the Influence very likely represents the, the height of his skills. Like that was really where he was at his, uh, in, in a directorial sense, his strongest. Just like how 2001 is pretty indisputably like Kubrick at the very movie. top of his game. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that movie. But in the same way, like my personal favorite, the one I've watched the most is actually Love Streams just for me because it resonates more in the same way that I... I feel like for, for Kubrick, like Barry Lyndon actually is not... That's a beautiful film. Yeah. It's, it's not the Snorefest that people think it is because it's period in three hours. Like, it's incredibly funny and engaging and yeah. very... I mean, I think it's as riddled with a lot of the subliminal stuff that people... It's heartbreaking out. at times. Yeah, it, It's very heartbreaking. And, you know, I was re-watching the film recently on Blu-ray uh, and <laughs> there's a whole sequence that I never noticed, I don't think anyone notices, where they actually show an entire village get raped as an afterword. There's wow. a sequence early on when Barry is still like you know a red coat, and he's just walking around. And through the narration, I don't know the exact narration, but I never caught until recently after seeing it like at least a dozen times that they all just like raped and killed everybody in that village. And it's a very subtle thing that he does because it's not as explicit to alert the powers that be. It's it's just there. It's like all the subversiveness is there, uh, and and it's a, it's such a strong. Uh, moment uh, precisely because you never notice it. Like you don't really notice that you're actually seeing the aftermath of how many dozens of women getting raped in this village, just because it's in the background. 
Um, I, I, I get. I, I, I wasn't really planning to do this, and this is kind of serendipity <laughs> thing. But I'm, I'm really excited about it because I, I definitely want to do this again with you guys. Like Kubrick is for sure one of the guy. Scorsese is another one of the. Uh, and uh, uh, Bob Altman. How about Bob Altman? Oh, yeah. yeah, and I'm I'm a big I, Altman guy too. I, I, yeah. I would love to do that. And um, um, like LA Film Festival, year, a couple years ago, um, they were they were playing uh, Clockwork Orange, and Malcolm McDowell was there, and he spoke for like forty minutes, thirty forty minutes, and it was so engaging. I, yeah, I, um, I love him. It was so worth it, and just watching Clockwork Orange on the um, um, actual theater. So uh, it's moments like this, like wow, you know, I, I really appreciate living in L.A. or visiting New York City because you you can't have that if you live in Iowa. So I like hear, that. yeah, it's uh, you know, obviously David does as well. I try to take advantage of that as much as possible. So going back. Uh, Dave, which one did you love the most out of all the uh, Cassavetti movie? Like, which my personal favorite is Love Streams. Okay. For a long time, uh, well, actually, for a, a brief window, I was also being a bit of a contrarian. Although I still really love the film, I would say Husbands uh, probably is still the hardest film he made. I think it's still the hardest to engage with. People who love Cassavetti's will still struggle through Husbands because it is such an unlikable experience. I think, uh, at least my observation, and. Uh, for a while, I floated husbands around just because I knew it would uh, elicit the response of like, no, you're, you're just a contrarian. You can't possibly think that's the best I, I love husbands. I don't have any... I, <laughs> I, I, I don't... Some of those uh, those scenes do run on endlessly, but the scene where they're getting drunk oh. and they're forcing people to sing and, and the... I mean, it's just, it's just hanging out with those guys. It's just something that they would probably be doing if they were roaring drunk. And... Uh, Husbands, it's a challenging film, but I I think it's a great film too. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's just amazing how completely different an experience watching one of his movies is. It's so different. Everything about it is different. Uh, what? How do you feel about the early films like Too Late Blues, Love Stream? Uh, not Love Streams. A Child Is Waiting. Uh, I think both films have a lot of merit to them. Like I think the, uh, in particular with The Child is Waiting, the uh, performances from these children are incredible. Yeah, and you know, of course, the legend about how he focused on them. Exactly. Rather than Judy Garland and Burt Lancaster. And uh, how that drove Kramer through the roof and eventually got him kind of blacklisted. Yeah. Now, um, I, I'm really curious, so how did you have how did you meet Ben Sarah? I don't I, I, like how does that happen? Was it through your internship? Uh, so the story goes, it was March of 2011. The Cine family in Los Angeles. Because at the he, he he died within the last year and a half or so, didn't he? Two yeah, years? yeah, yeah. Okay. Who are we talking about? Oh, Ben Gazzara. Oh, Ben Gazzara. My my night with Ben. Okay. Where I'm sorry, I thought we were still on on John. I was like, wait, John died two years ago. <laughs> yeah. He died in '89. Sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's fine. Um, so in uh, March 2001, there's a, a comprehensive Casavetti's retrospective at the Cine family. And I look on Facebook. At this time, I'm still working as a part-timer at the Apple Store in Manhattan Beach. And I'm literally at the door greeting people and pointing to where they can buy iPods and iPhones. And I look at my phone, sneaking a glance so my manager doesn't fire me. Uh, and I see that on Facebook, they desperately need somebody to pick up Ben Gazzara the following night at LAX. Oh, my God. And before anyone else can nab that spot in the comments thread, 
I jump in and say, yeah, I, I can do that. I can do that. I, I can pick up Ben Gazar. Please, let me pick up Ben Gazar. I have an SUV. It'll be perfect. It'll be really comfortable. It's leather. Um, <laughs> leather interior. He'll like it. He's, so he's they, they don't have any problem getting people. I mean, who, who doesn't want to pick up Ben Gazar, right? Yeah, in fact, it might be a point of contention. Like They might want to keep the requests a little more... Uh, <laughs> a little see. more private because uh, I, see. I, I feel like it's one of those things like maybe because uh, we know of the legend that is Ben Gazzara but putting on Facebook hey Ben Gazzara is coming to LAX who can get him is really casual I mean it wasn't yeah. a private message so the following night I wish you would have just show, <laughs> show up at LAX if it's Rickshaw that, that would have been <laughs> dressed up as a Chinese bookie too um, well, this is unbelievable. It just—it's almost not believable. I believe you. So you picked him up. What was he like in person? Well, he was really cool. He was pretty much how you would imagine. That's the thing. Like that—that's the thing that I, I've been telling uh, friends when I relay this story. Is that what was so remarkable about meeting him is that he really—he's one of those guys. Part of you know, really part of classic Hollywood, and, and part oh, of a whole sure. different era. And you know, at this point, like you know, when I met him that one night in March of 2011 it was about a year before he passed away and I could tell like he his voice already sounded very different because he had had at, at uh, that point surgery. how old was he about gosh easily in his late 70s oh yeah. is that right I think okay. so uh, you know I was trying to get into that screening so many of those were sold out and I remember I went down there that night and it was sold out not only that night do you remember what the highlight was that weekend I don't that Sunday afternoon, at the last minute, Gary Oldman calls CineFamily and says, I'm not sure if you have anyone prepped to do the Q&A, but I would love to come down and meet Ben and uh, oh, do the Q&A and oh, moderate cool. it. Is that okay? Oh, that's so cool. And you're like, yeah, please. Yeah, Gary Oldman. That would Oldman. be incredible. That's cool. And he came, uh, Gary Oldman came that night, or that uh, afternoon, Sunday afternoon, and of course it was a packed house because Gary Oldman and Ben Gazar are just chatting for 45 minutes. Ben Gazzara bounces with Seymour Cassell and a bunch and like Bo Harwood and uh, Mike Ferris and a bunch of the Cassavetes crew to, for drinks. Wow. Gary Oldman stays because like literally two thirds of the audience leave after the Q and A. It was a Q and A that that preceded the screening, which right. is you know unlike what they normally do. And then they they show a print of uh, Chinese bookie and the theater is now actually unfortunately like less than half full. And then right dead center is Gary Oldman sitting uh, and watching the entire film. Not only that, the Cine family, which for anyone who knows the Cine family, they cut up some really fucking weird trailers. Oh, and yeah. And so it's Gary Oldman watching trailers before Chinese Bookie of a bunch of stuff they're doing for, uh, oh, like, yeah. you know, some kind of weird thing for April. Yeah, like where, a Chester Turner kind like, of thing. Yeah, like a, a shot on video horror or like everything That's the terrible. beauty of Cine family, you know. Just, yeah. It was great to hear Gary Oldman laughing his ass off watching like puppets having sex or like someone's head you know being they uh, do blown some off real the gonzo shotgun. stuff there <laughs> and yeah it is it is an interesting blend that's great that Gary came down I was there the only thing I think I saw I'd seen so many of the films plus the sellouts you know the combination of all that didn't make me target that festival I, obviously I got that poster for I, I saw opening night I was there for opening night and Bar, like you said Bar, Bo Harwood and Mike Ferris, they were all there. Yeah. I asked a question about Val Avery because I love Val Avery. Who, who, who is that? He's a character actor that he's in tons and tons of movies and Cassavetes had his stock company and Val was in that and he has an incredibly memorable scene in Minion Moskowitz. 
great character actor. But anyway, Ben oh, Gazzara. Oh, the two quick anecdotes, very mm. quick, is mm. that while I was driving him to his hotel, which was the standard in Hollywood, and, and that leads to the second anecdote, he was in the back seat, and his wife, uh, whose name I forget, but she was really lovely, and they, want, they, they were very nice. They just wanted to ask questions uh, to me. They wanted to know more about me, and so I explained how I got involved with the Cine family and stuff I was working on and movies I love, and then they, they zeroed in on the fact that I was a part-time employee at the Apple store, and then right away his wife had a bunch of questions about her iPhone and her MacBook. Which then quickly plus prompted. Asian guys, of course, she's going to believe you. computer, and then uh, and then Ben jumps in and says, and then he, and, you know, he, it was like he was in a scene from Chinese Bookie, like as he was being driven around in the limo <laughs> by a Chinese guy. Yeah, by a yeah, Chinese yeah, guy. Yeah. he was kind of like laughing and kind of doing that thing where he's like looking at me and looking outside the uh, uh, the window and just going, yeah, you know, and just like laughing between every word. I was thinking about getting a what do you, what do you call it, a MacBook? I think about getting a MacBook. I should get a MacBook. And it was the weirdest thing. Like, he actually had very valid questions about maybe he could cut some stuff up for, like, maybe he was going to... He had spoken very briefly, briefly about putting a website together of memorabilia and uh, clips, photos he had, which I'm sure are a wealth of great stuff. Oh, yeah. And he's just kind of... But, you know, never obviously we never followed up after that. And, I, you know, more than anything, I think he wanted to make a good conversation. But it was interesting to... Talk to Ben Gazar about getting a fucking MacBook Pro. Yeah. We pull up to the standard in Hollywood, and he is macking on every attractive young female in the lobby. That's hilarious. He was, I mean, he was like a very, you know, like really did wearing they, his, Did they recognize him though? No, not at all. Oh, okay, I'm that's sure what they thought. didn't. Yeah. But it was funny because when he was in the backseat of Mark, he was being extremely fatherly, grandfatherly to me and very courteous. And in fact, when I. I parked my car, which I don't normally do when I pick up friends at LAX, but it's Ben Gazzara. So I park my car, pay the five bucks, wait by the terminal. He comes out. When he sees me, he gives me a hug. Like the oh, kind wow. of hug for an old man oh. where he's actually hurting my ribs because he's hugging me that hard, like a side hug. You're meeting him for the first time. Meeting for the first time. Oh, that's sweet. And I'm like, I'm like, Mr. Gazzara, I'm here to pick you up for the Cine family. And he's like, <laughs> I was like uh, Christina Ricci in uh, Buffalo 66. Come here, sit on the And he's like hugging me and like really squeezing my ribs and they're hurting. Oh, that's Then funny. we step into the standard in Hollywood and he's a fucking completely different guy. He is like... Uh, would you would you like say he, would you say there's some presence maybe a swagger about him even young ladies that didn't know him in his movies there's something about him that's attractive to women would you say that yeah or, yeah he I mean and his wife was there but he was still putting on the charm like he was completely flirting with the uh, hostess sure. at the front desk and I think I think he if I remember correctly he was even able to like get a drink. Right there in the lobby, like almost. I mean, a guy like that, right? Like he's at a hotel lobby. Immediately, a uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a whiskey is like in his hand. I, I think if fantastic. people watched enough TV and movies, even if you didn't recognize him, you you probably seen him in something where you probably recognize that he's been in show business or someone. Well, if you're of a certain age, sure. But, you know, I mean, maybe the Buffalo '66 crowd. Maybe. Oh yeah, I forgot about maybe. that. He's a big uh, <laughs> he Buffalo Bills movie. fan. <laughs> he did a movie. Well, when you say David, like he did movies right up to the end, right? He, yeah. He was still. It probably wasn't more than a few months since his last film before he passed away. You know, he probably continued to be in films. So maybe he would be recognized by a younger crowd. I don't know. Well, you know, Dave. I um, like I said, Steve. I I really appreciate you doing this. I know I just show up. I no, just abruptly fun. made your home. 
uh, as my podcast uh, lab, uh, but um, I, I, I just surpassed my expectation. And I, I you know, the, like I said, I'm not as familiar as you guys, but like uh, like Kubrick, I definitely want to talk to you guys. Uh, Werner Herzog, for sure. You know, I, I saw him oh, a couple, yeah. couple lectures, and like I just awesome. find him uh, uh, amazing. And uh, Scorsese, and maybe even um, like even um, of course Kurosawa. Joel Schumacher. <laughs> well, so I, I, to me, I, uh, I just think people have a wide variety of uh, tasteful food. Sometimes I like junk food. Other time I want a healthy food. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I, the, mm-hmm. the thing about, uh, just to give you an example, going back to Cine Family, you see this at like the other theaters as well, New Beverly, you'll, you'll see. And New Beverly is owned by Quentin Tarantino. Well, he, I, think, I believe he owns the property. I see. So, but yeah, basically. He's basically the, and uh, the point I was coming to is that you, you will see like the same people for the Chester and Turner, Black Devil Doll from Hell, You'll see them there for Ted Michaels movies, and then you'll see them there for, uh, uh, you know, Ozu, Cassavetes. You know, it's just if it's on the fringes, whether it's the high art or the lowbrow stuff, you see a lot of the same people. So there, there's kind of an odd connection between the, you know, the really artistic stuff and the avant-garde stuff and the really lowbrow stuff. I have not to really say, lowbrow, but you know what I mean. Like I have to say, one of the reasons I was interested in Cassavetti. Is because um, I, I'm a very good friend with Sasha Gray now. But when I first knew her, uh, I didn't know her that well. And I, I and I, I'm obviously well old. I'm old enough to be her dad. But she's very attractive. And one of the few times I actually had a very uh, fun conversation was um, talking a little bit about Cassavetti, right? And the only reason I knew, I, 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 <laughs> I did even a little bit of homework because <laughs> I read an interview like she really likes him and like. You know, I couldn't tell uh, at the time did she was she into it because of being a hipster. But like over the years, I got to know her, and like she really, really loved Cassavetti. Mm-hmm. And like I had one of the fun conversation with her. This is years ago, but it's. It, I'm not gonna lie to you. My I had a really shitty reason why I was interested in it, which is I get to look at a really attractive girl, and we had a pretty nice conversation. That's but, not a shitty reason. But I, I, I have to say, I, I finally saw Chinese Bookie because you and Recall was recommending it. I really yeah. enjoyed it. That, that, that it's, it's almost a great like, film. It, it, I really enjoyed it because I think if I was younger, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it. But it's almost like watching baseball. It has it. It, it doesn't have a lot of fast pacing to it. No, not at all. Not at all. But I'll tell it, you the circumstances mm-hmm. I first saw it to cut you off. It was at the New Beverly about 20 years ago. Let's see, what is it, 2013? It was probably like 92. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it was playing on a double bill with Mikey and Nikki. I was, this was at the beginning, the onset of Cassavetes. Maybe I'd, I, by then I had known who he was. I was reading about him. But that was about a couple of years after he passed away. About three, four years after okay. he passed away. It was a double bill with Mikey and Nikki. We got there. I love Mikey and Nikki, and I was anticipating Bookie. Of course, I'm thinking it's going to be like a... I, I don't know what exactly what I thought it was going to be like, but I was anticipating something much more fast-paced, and I was watching it, and I was pretty much of the, the opinion that it was probably the worst movie I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, this movie, it was just pounding me senseless. Yeah. Like, it's just not moving. It's not going. And what is this? Is so. I, it wasn't just boredom. It was just complete and total... I was completely and totally disoriented. And then... The more you watch of his films, the more you read, the more you start to understand that uh, the the 
artistic trajectory of something like that. You start to appreciate, like, wait a minute, these are rhythms of real life. These are these are, you know, this is not being told in a. a st anyway, we're going over the same territory, but you can you know where I'm coming from. But that sure. and that, that was, those were my that was what it was like for me seeing Bookie for the first time. Now I think it's an amazing movie, and it's just yeah, it, it was really wonderful. It's fascinating. Yeah, he's tremendous in the film. I didn't get a second of it when I saw it the first time. I, I do want to add uh, very quickly to jump off Steve's point is that you know this kind of dialogue is exactly what I've been so thankful for mm -hmm. uh, in the last couple of years, especially in the in the realm of going to repertory theaters and cinematheques yeah. and meeting people who really watch movies, not people who are quote unquote in the movie industry, but rather people who, what regardless of their affiliation with the industry at large who really make an effort to watch movies because that's what they love doing. This is the kind of dialogue that doesn't really exist as far as I know in film schools because everything has to be so rigidly categorized. And I think the ebb and flow of how we feel about stuff, uh, like the first time you watch it versus the second, third, and onward, like that is such an engaging part of the film dialogue. I mean, art dialogue in general, but film in particular, because that's our forte. But like that, that's what makes it so... Uh, challenging I think for people who like in other words going back to the film school thing is when people ask me who are younger and they want to go to film school which what was your experience like I just think that that there's nothing interesting in film school uh, unless you're a complete novice and you just need like your A, B's and C's you know then it's an okay place to start but you know quite frankly it's like the best musicians you've ever met, unless they're from Juilliard and they're like, you know, master violinists, the, the best musicians we probably all know and love never really had any formal training or they never really went to any prestigious school for it. Yeah. I really feel that way about films. Like, I think the people I've met who really blew me away in terms of film knowledge are other filmmakers and people who curate or who work on movies in a, in, in a workmanship kind of way. That's why with very few exceptions, I generally don't like a lot of critics, and I think a lot of people who write about film, as clever as they may be, and, and I'll still read a lot of stuff, but there's not some innate knowledge. I think the only literature right now, in a mainstream sense, that's really getting film opinion and film uh, nuances right is, is actually a lot of stuff written in like AV Club, where you could tell the people are very, very well-versed in film, but they also have a sense of humor about it, and they're, they're willing to ebb and flow a bit as far as you know you know they're definitely of the film school product but they also have attended special screenings and they still geek out over uh, uh, you know people who are part of film history as opposed to the celebrity of the moment things like that mm -hmm. um, I agree it's a roundabout way to compliment the fact that you uh, but they did the, but the, but they, I agree <laughs> may I, may, um, one, how old are you? I turned 30 a few months ago Man, but when I when I just listen, <laughs> you know a lot of shit for a thirty year old guy. You're thirty years old, but then when I listen to you, you sounds like yeah. a seventy year old Askenazi Jew. I mean, really, <laughs> you sound like you know. And um, this is one of the you know I don't want to get detail, but this is one of the few things I really miss working with Steve because uh, we could be incredibly crude, we could be incredibly racist, oh, incredibly oh, oh, just oh, oh. like assholes. Oh yeah. But there's few times when we spend Our time. True selves. <laughs> when we when we talk about film and boy I cannot find anyone uh, um, uh, of course you have people like Donald Richie's but but when I listen to Steve just praising and supporting Japanese cinema uh, you know it's just like 
he, Steve Catani is uh, honorary Jap. If in my, uh, <laughs> if I have that's the like, sweetest thing you've ever said to me. I mean, he. Uh, well, you know, they call me. I feel stupid next to Dave, though, man. I mean, this guy's really. I mean, it's very. It's a very articulate, scholarly way. You, you know, I hope. Hopefully, someday you you write. You know, you get so if that's what you want to do, like write about film or become a programmer. I mean, but you, you are one impressive cat. Man. I, and oh, and I have to say yeah, about you're Dave, a brilliant guy. I have to say what Dave. I mean, I'm ne- I didn't go to uh, film school, but but he's he's absolutely right in this sense. It does. It, school can't teach you to have passion for something. You know what I yeah. mean? And there's times. I mean, I'm, I you know I don't know how you guys feel about Quentin Tarantino, but I love the guy. Love him. I love the guy. Yeah, me too. And and uh, it just. Even if you don't understand film or whatnot, you understand enthusiasm. You know this. Yeah. You know this guy loves cinema the way Joey Severo loved transsexual movies. I mean, <laughs> uh, we should do a podcast with Joey. He's too shy. Huh? He's very shy, but yeah, uh, I, I would love to do it. But um, Dave, I, uh, I I would like to do it next time. I don't know, like like I I'd like to know more about Werner Herzog, and I actually met him a couple of times. Uh, I just say hello, but um, I like. I would defer to Dave on that. I don't know that. I mean, I I know the bullet points, but David probably knows a lot more. About so we'll, we'll discuss uh, later on. But I would like to, you know, I'm leaving a couple of weeks, but I'd like to, if, if if possible, I would like to do a couple more times if you guys are free. Well, but yeah, I, I really had a fun. This well, really worked out wonderfully. Yeah, thank you for you saying. Know, I don't know if I don't know if the listener like it, but I liked it, and my philosophy always been, I love Mystery Science Three Thousand. <laughs> and people ask him like, some journalists ask, him, "Don't you? Aren't you afraid sometimes some of your references is so vague or so uh, esoteric that maybe people don't get it?" He said, "I don't care about the people who don't get my reference. I'm doing it for people who gets me." This is one of the writers for MST Three K. One of the writers. On yeah, that? the oh. guy, the main guy. And yeah. then my feel is like, I don't really care about the numbers. I just want people who like what I like, and. Episodes like this, where I, I know so little about, about it, but it's really fun to talk to pe- two people who know a lot. And uh, Dave, I'm telling you, Steve has said nothing but compliment about you, and he really enjoyed talking with you. And I could I could understand because I, I I've I met you a couple of times, but we really didn't talk too much about film. And uh, I'm I'm glad you showed up tonight. And uh, hopefully yeah. next time uh, I I'm leaving two weeks. I would like to do at least two more times, and because um, um, maybe we can roll Bill in for one. We could do one with Lustig, maybe. Oh, I yeah. would love that. Yeah. I, 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 I'm that really, would be awesome. Yeah, we'll go to his place, maybe, and, and, and then, uh, and then and or Chris D. Sure. Do you know Chris D? Uh, Programmer, right? I've read a lot of his stuff. I've seen his intros yeah. at the Egyptian. Never met him, though. Okay, I know I know Chris a little bit. So. Um, Whoa, those two would be awesome to talk yeah, to. Yeah, they're buddies. So yeah. we'll def- we should definitely try to coordinate. I mean, Yoshi and I have been trying for a year. Bill, Bill will do it. Bill, and they, yeah. they've both said yes. It's just been... Like a matter of scheduling. They're busy, very, very busy. And people. October for all of us is for a wide variety of reasons has been kind of a busy month. But we should uh, we should try to do something, and it'd be great if you were involved. So, yeah, uh, David, are you, uh, so it's David C H I E N, correct? Uh huh. So it's like dog in French. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and you know, you, and you know, Asians love dogs. Right, it's perfect. Um, <laughs> so, um, are you? What are you? Are you? Are you working on a project? What's your Twitter account? Um, do you have a Twitter account? I do. Uh, boy, do I say anything really bad on it? Anything offensive? Uh, well, my Twitter handle. Well, for I, now. I just want to give them information <laughs> where they they want to follow you or contact you. What's the best way to contact you or follow you? Uh, probably Twitter. Okay. Uh, what I, what I is usually it? Usually, shoot a lot of shit about films. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty easy. It's the David Chen. 
C H I E N. So the David Chen okay. is my Twitter handle. Are you working on a new project? Are you looking for、uh, what's going on right now for you? Well, after、uh, producing Two Friends' feature films、uh, in 2007 and 2010, we I, we actually missed each other in South by Southwest. We were there and we did, yeah. yeah. And a, another movie that was uh, uh, sort of、uh, involved with、uh, After the Fact、uh, played at South by Southwest this year. A movie called Saki Bomb.、Uh, Which deals with Asian American male sexuality. That could be a whole other three-part miniseries.、Um, I could summarize by one word: gay. <laughs> but、uh, I'm kidding. Go ahead.、Um, you know, we missed each other this year at South by. Sure.、Uh, well, last year, about a year ago, I went to Taiwan, where I still have family and、uh, some friends, and I, I shot a feature that was an enormously educational experience. And after editing and mixing it and Rewatching it a dozen times earlier this year, I shelved it、uh, to pave way for another feature that I'd be working on. Something that's extremely like no budget, one man crew, just working with actors and non professionals alike, and workshopping scenes and and、um, performances together.、Uh, I really love working with actors. That's the the main thing. When you did you did it or you're going to do it soon? the The second project is something I'm working on currently. I actually.、Uh, From I came from a friend's house, who I just find very、uh, unique and very interesting looking, and was hearing her thoughts on things, and hopefully we'll get her involved somehow. Okay, well, you know, I, I,、uh, whenever that's done, I would definitely want to dedicate one particular episode on that, and we'll talk more about it. But、um, sure, thanks, thanks for doing it, and、uh, everyone, please follow David and Steve. Do do you have, how how does one contact you or follow you? Do you have a Twitter account or Facebook or、uh, uh, neither? Okay. <laughs> The、uh, well, it's just the the big thing right now is finishing up the documentary, and、uh, we're nearing the finish line. So,、uh, hopefully, we'll have the trailer embedded on the website. We don't have it embedded just yet, but but it will be soon.、Uh, there's a placeholder you can get on the mailing list. Dougdunning dot com d o u g d u n n i n g dot com. And this documentary, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the whole thing because、uh, a good friend,、uh, uh, of course, you, Steve Catani, and Tracy Tufts, you guys dedicated two years of your lives and、uh, helping this guy. And it's an inter- interesting character. Sometimes he seems a little questionable at times, but I'm, I'm really looking forward、yeah. to seeing this movie. And if you have a question or, or advice or、uh, comments about Steve. Uh, you, I guess you could email me dumbyoshi at gmail dot com, <laughs> d u m b y o s h i at gmail dot com. But、uh, Dave and Steve, thanks for doing this. I, I'm really looking forward to doing a couple other directors because、um, it's a really fun learning experience. And like,、uh, I definitely want to watch some of those movies that you guys recommended. And I like this anecdote and the people that you met, Dave. It's fantastic. I like it.、Uh, it's surprising that you knew David Chan. I mean, uh, uh, David Chan and、uh, very nice guy,、uh, partner of、uh, business partner of Brett Ratner. Oh, John Chang. John, I'm sorry, John Chan. I'm sorry, and、um, it's late. <laughs> I apologize, <laughs> but he's fantastic. And uh, uh, once again,、uh, we'll just finish this now. But、um, this episode is dedicated to resurrecting Doug Dunning. So please follow、uh, the website, and I'm sure there's a、um, follow Tracy Tubbs' Twitter account as well. T U F F S. And I'm looking forward to seeing the documentary、hopefully, next year.、Uh, yeah, hopefully, yeah.、Uh, hopefully, these are just a couple of trailer screenings, but hopefully, the movie will be locked、mm-hmm. soon, and then the festival route, and we'll see what happens after that. VOD, DVD, the whole nine yards. In 2014. 2014. So、uh, check out、uh, Resurrecting Doug Dunning, and also、uh, please support my younger brother, Skater Yoshi's.、Um, 
skateboard t-shirt company, uh, Midnight Ice Cream up in Seattle. So anyway, thanks for listening. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to doing second, third, fourth episodes with you guys talking about movies. Me too. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks. thanks. Bye.